0: Well, thank you very much for coming. As always, with CCW we get this extraordinary high turnout, um, which is uh, a mark of popularity of our speaker and the subject, and I hope the research centre itself. Um, now, Oscar Johnson. Um, yeah, thank you so much for coming. Sorry about the long preamble. The Russian understanding of war. Thank you very much indeed for coming. Well, thank you very much, Rob, and uh, thank you all for coming. And. and um, <laughs> I'm particularly happy to be here today, um, Changing Character War program. Um, this is exactly what I've been uh, researching in this book. It's how is the Russian uh, understanding of the changing character war developing? Um, so sometime around 2012, I started uh, researching Russian military theory and I got struck about everybody saying stuff like the boundaries between war and peace are blurring and that non-military means are becoming... Any else. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> that was the roll call. And that uh, non-military, non-military means are becoming more important to military. So this is really the start of my research. Why were they saying this, and what does it mean? What is changing? What is blurring the boundaries between war and, uh, war and peace? And why are non-military means becoming more important? If you follow this topic closely, you kind of started to notice that the last years. Western military leaders and political leaders have started saying the same things, but it was a significant time lag, in maybe about five years where um, I think the Russians were pioneering this quite a lot as well. But first of all, we need to start a little bit to establish the baseline here. Well, what is, how do we think of war? This has been the orthodoxy both in Russia and in the West is the way of thinking of the essence of war is the continuation of politics by means of armed force. Uh, Lenin um, read Klausovich and incorporated that that became the formal definition in the Soviet Union for how you understand war. This is taken from Marxism-Leninism on War and Army, which is an authoritative uh, textbook on the issue. And in it they state that the essence of war does not include in many other important ways to share victory. Basically saying war is armed violence um, and not non-military means. They're definitionally excluded. How many of you guys know the guy on the left? <coughs> Hand up. No one? Gerazimov. Sorry, who? Gerasimov. No. Nope. Yeah. No. Nope. Okay. Mahmoud Garayev. During the Soviet Union, he was deputy chief of general staff as an active practitioner, and after that he's been president of the Royal Academy of War Sciences, leading figure in Russian military theory. Fortunately, he passed away uh, just after Christmas. Then up until his death, that's 96, almost 97 years old, he was contributing to, to military theory in a whole important uh, position. This is basically what he said, two, 2005. Without the use of military force, war has never been and it never can be. Okay. But then something happened. All of a sudden, all the leading Russian military theorists started talking like this The definitions of the essence of war must, to some extent, be reviewed. The threat is connected with information and other subversive action, the creation of controlled chaos, as was seen in Iraq, Libya, Ukraine. This is the same Garayev who just said before that, you know, Without the use of armed force, worse can never be. And now he says, we need to rethink what war fundamental is. And this has to do with information and the creation of controlled chaos, which is a a concept that I will explain a little bit, but it will be read synonymously as color revolutions. Another example, this guy you should know. Eurasimov. Eurasimov, exactly. (laughs) He's saying, color revolutions are the main means of achieving their political ambitions. And by there, he means the West. He says. Today, it's obvious that the line between war and peace is blurring, and that non military means and forms of struggle have a quite violent nature. So, means that we traditionally not thought violent uh, today has a quite violent nature. Bonus points I'll get a copy to the one who gets this guy. Hmm. It's not that far off. Okay, good. Then I don't have to buy it. <laughs> it's uh, Deputy Defense Minister Cartapolo. Uh, before that, he was head of the uh, Western Military District. He put it at this. A classical war of the 20th century consisted usually of 80% violence and 20% propaganda. New type war consists of 80 to 90% propaganda and 10 to 20% violence. Okay, so this is just a brief overview. What are the leading figures saying and how they um, change the way they think about war? How many of you have seen this one? Skurasimov's <coughs> article. Yeah, this is from his uh, January 2013 article. And you're not supposed to see all of it, but the only key part. That got a lot of attention is this one. The correlation of non military to military <coughs> measures um, are four to one, i.e., that is to say uh, that non military means are four times as important as military. And this is supposed to um, represent a, a schematic view of conflict. This has been kind of wrongly popularized as the Gerasimov doctrine because it was basically the only article that Western observers has read before Russia invaded Ukraine, and then it was took as a very neat and comfortable way of saying, ha this is how Russia does modern war. It's not wrong, but it was just, it's been, uh, let's say, overinterpreted uh, from his January two, 2013 speech. This, I think, is probably the most crisp summary to see how Russia thinks about modern war and escalation. This is from a 2014 speech of uh, Gerasimov, and it's basically lining up this. First of all, West will start with non-military means to provoke color revolutions to get their way. So what are the color revolutions? 2003, uh, the Rose Revolution in Georgia. 2004, the Orange Revolution in Ukraine. In 2005, the Tulip Revolution in Kyrgyzstan, even though it should definitely not be included into this. So what happened? In the Russian eyes, they saw that the West had been so effective through uh, information influence, ideological influence, diplomatic pressure, support to NGOs, um, and the use of intelligence services to basically brainwash the inhabitants of these countries to overthrow their corrupt autocratic rulers. Um, and then after the, the, them came notably more pro-Western leaders, Saakashvili in Georgia and Yushchenko in Ukraine. This understanding of color revolutions then expanded with the Arab Spring, which was also in Russia con- constructed to be part of color revolutions. And of course, as probably you all know, The uh, 2013-2014 Euromaidan, 2013 Euromaidan, 2014, Euromaidan revolution as well. This is all seen the way that West would prefer to get their way in international relations. I will talk a little bit more about that. If that doesn't work, then we'll escalate to the concealed use of force, using special forces, supporting armed opposition, using private military security companies. Can anyone come up with examples when we, the West, have done this? Never? (laughs) Iraq, Afghanistan? Afghanistan started with uh, liaising with the Northern Alliance, making their way down to the north to overthrow the Taliban. I think Syria maybe also be uh, um, a good example. If that doesn't work, then we'd further escalate. uh, Look for pretext to launch a military operation, and then go for open military interference. Here I would put Libya. I think someone said Libya. Um, Maybe Iraq. All of this, of course, aiming to get your political views across. So why are color revolutions so feared? Well, today we think of Russia. We think of it as a great power, who managed to impact elections across the globe, who has their finger in and everything bad that happens, who can conduct military operations in the Middle East, but if you look at Russian modern history, it's a it's a story of fragility and instability. I've just listed a couple of dates which emphasize uh, how close it has been. 89 to, to 91, you had the chaos of the Soviet Union dissolving. 91 you had the August Putsch uh, a coup attempt, you had from ninety-two to ninety-nine Russia wasn't even controlling its own territory, with Chechnya being de facto independent. Can you imagine any other great power? you know, the US not controlling New Mexico or Arizona. In 93, you had, uh, who recognizes the picture? White House. White House. You had a standoff with the Speaker of the Duma and President Yeltsin, to the point that Yeltsin bombed his own parliament. That's how fragile the political situation was. You had another financial crisis, you had the Second Chechen War. And in 2005, you had the movements of another, of a color revolution in Russia. We had some of the key figures, um, Boris named Sovile Yashin from the Russian opposition, going to Maidan, protesting, um, participating in the Orange Revolution and trying to bring that, import that to Moscow. Um, So this is also one of Gerasimov's pictures. This is him showing where the West has attempted in yellow and succeeded in red with color revolutions across, across the globe. And if you're really perceptive, you notice that there's some sloppy staff officer who hasn't translated Kuwait <laughs> from Cyrillic. But that's besides the point. Uh, this is, and what, what's striking with this is this is some of the Russia's most important uh, partners, neighbors, states that have lost their leaders in color revolutions. Ukraine is the most obvious example, of course. So my argument is really this. If you're... If you're sitting in the Kremlin, what, what worries you the most? I'm arguing that a mediocre Russian intelligence analyst would quite quickly figure out that, okay, NATO does not have the force posture, the capabilities, the intentions, the exercises to invade Russia. NATO is not about to invade Russia. I would argue that's not that hard to figure out, you can argue with me if you want. Uh, but rather every day you have people, you have the opposition in the streets, uh, challenging The legitimacy of the Russian leadership, Um, and this is also a story why the color revolutions has, from the beginning, it's on mostly at unfortunate sporadic events to be seen as purposeful warfare. Just take one example why this is not fully outlandish. I believe that these are spontaneous revolutions, which was in response to. All the original ones was to fraudulent elections were the incumbents trying to steal the elections, uh, but the people got the word and rose up. But this is it not fully paranoia. You take one example such as Saakashvili, spring of 2003, he goes to Serbia to receive nonviolent training financed by the National Endowment for Democracy, the National Democratic Institute, and the International Republican Institute, the party foundations uh, in the US. And then uh, less than six months later, he and his colleagues who got this training goes to Georgia and starts the Rose revolutions, which was also relying on violent <laughs> protest methods. In the Russian eyes, this is okay. Of course, it was the U.S. Uh, CIA, the U.S. leadership who created this. The second part of what the Russian leaders see in changing war is information warfare. I showing you two quotes again. New types of weapons and information warfare would be as effective as nuclear weapons, but more acceptable from a political and military view," says Putin. Western countries are increasing the scale of a tough information war least against Russia, says Kirasimov. And this is not just rhetorics. Um, in June 2017, you have a poll, 69% of the Russians polled, said that Russia was in an information <coughs> war against West. So <coughs> why is information warfare seen as so important? How many of you have read the book uh, First Person? An astonishing frank self Portrait. So when Putin was appointed prime minister, he was something like the fifth prime minister in four years. And he was completely unknown. And he was going to run for president. So to get him known to the wider public, they had some journalists doing marathon interviews with him that they then compiled and wrote a book about. This book is called First Person. This book is the source of a lot of the modern Putinology where people try to get inside Putin's brain and describe what his psychological traits are. This is is kind of the main source for that. Um, In it he talks about a lot of things and I recommend all of you to read it. It's quite a short book, but it's a very interesting account to who he is before he was who he became. Um, In it he says, we, we lost the first Chechen war due to lack of morale. This, the Chechen war was unpopular for the start, but this also, to a large degree, uh, was due to the fact that Russian journalists, Russian media was quite free back then, could fly down to Dagestan, jump in a cab, get to Chechnya, interview some warlords, uh, get remunerated, paid by the warlords, then fly back to Moscow and write a report that was critical to the war. Morale among the troops were also horrible. So, uh, what happened to the Second Chechen War? Russia adopted a strategy. They had only allowed for better journalists. They censored what was being allowed to be broadcast, and they dispatched psychologists to the units to monitor all kinds of morale. However, what they didn't think about was the event of the Internet. So the Chechen side, which has gone from being a nationalist separatist struggle more and more to being a, a globalist jihadi struggle, it was basically the way you went if you were a global... Globalist jihadi back in 99, something like Syria was a couple of years ago. I don't think that many people want to go to Syria now. Uh, they managed to use the internet to rally recruits, to spread their deeds, to rally finance. Uh, and the Russian side was co- almost completely unprepared for using the internet. And it was after this you moreover heard statements such as, ah, uh, internet is a CIA project. All that I had picked up in intensity, which is still popular today. Um, another thing that just emphasizes how important the information domain are is, and how Putin learned it, was in 1996, uh, in 95, Putin was going, sorry, Jeltsin was going for re-election. But he was trailing in the polls. He was only the fifth most popular candidate. And the most popular one was Gennady Zyuganov, the communist leader. Then, a couple of the key oligarchs who owned the media empires got together and said, basically, hey, maybe communism is not that good, we tried that before, let's do something. And it's like, okay, maybe Yeltsin is better. So, within a very short span of time, a lot of compromising material was being pumped out on Shuganov, and a lot of positive reporting was being pumped out on Yeltsin. Uh, on Yeltsin managed to secure re-election by quite a narrow margin. What was the first thing Putin did when he came to power? He started very slowly, uh, not making that much noise of him, but one thing he really did was uh, kicking out Boris Berezovsky and Vladimir Gusinsky out of the country, taking control of their media empires, the key oligarchs that supported Yeltsin. So already the first thing he knew from his coming uh, to office was that the conflict in the media is, is, is critical. Fast forward a little bit to uh, the Georgian War. After it, the Russian, Russian regime took uh, after action review and sat and said, Hey, we managed to get the Georgians to fire first. Why does global media hate us? Well, they came to realize that um, they need to get their own voice out there. RT Russia Today was created in 2005, but after the Georgian War, its ambition, uh, ambitions notably increased. That's when they started RT Arabic, RT Spanish, RT French, RT US, RT UK. They were really seeing we're losing in the national. Uh, media arena. We need to update our strategy and combat it. And I think all of you are kind of starting to see where I'm getting what I'm telling this story is a lot of where the Russians has, Russian side has seen that they've been losing. It's where they've updated their strategy and try to do something about it for every time. Same as with the Arab Spring. The Arab Spring, the conventional wisdom of the Arab Spring is that is is the revolutions created by social media. And the Russian Springs uh, or what you call a modular phenomena. It's phenomena that inspires others. I mean, it starts in Tunisia, then goes to Libya, then goes to Egypt, then goes to Syria. It's, um, it's examples that, that others follow. And it, of course, impacted Russia as well, what you call the Russian winter or the Russian autumn. Um, we saw some of the biggest protests since uh, the Soviet Union surrounding the Russian 2011-2012 election. And they were also coordinated in social media. So after that, uh, yet again, the Russian leadership updated their, their, their toolbox. The first reported, um, to my knowledge, sighting of the what's today popularly called the troll factory was in 2013. It was a Russian journalist, Garmashapova uh, for Nova Gazeta, who reported of um, this factory in, uh, in St. Petersburg, but they were not spreading narratives that the whole West was decaying and, um, and such. No, it was uh, against Navalny and it was for Sabyanin for the uh, 2013 Moscow major elections. Similar to Ukraine, um, after uh, after the war in Ukraine, the Russian leadership drew out the founder of Ekontaktia, which is Known as the Russian Facebook, which is the more a common uh, social network to use in Russia, to take control of that. Um, Biden the definition of what can be labeled extremism, liking a Facebook post or uh, retweeting something could be makes you liable for being um, charged for promoting extremism. And these are all ways of seeing, okay. Today, opinions and understandings of what's happening in the world and legitimacy is being formed in social media. What can we do to get there? Okay, well, let's hire some thousand people to try to post comments and try to do it. And let's be able to try to shut down um, people by laws that are doing it. And then, of course, the surveillance aspect. Russia demands all foreign tech firms to have servers based in Russia. Um, And uh, they're included in the surveillance network. uh, all of that, whilst the internet is still quite free, everything is surveilled. And tech companies are, of course, happy to oblige with the Russian state government and put their service in Russia, which I think is wrong. Uh, U.S. elections. No, I'm not going to go too much into depth about this, but I think one of the things that interesting me the most when reading about influencing the U.S. elections is uh, the story of Blackstagram. How many have heard of it? So... so about the same time as the revelations of the Mueller report, uh, a number of accounts uh, were exposed, taken down, that was being driven from the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg. Most of them were quite inconsequential in size, but one of the biggest ones was Blackstagram and It had something like 130,000 followers. So 95% of the content posted was legitimate civil rights questions. But 5% of them were very, very clearly political targeted to the elections. And they were saying, don't go and vote, and don't vote for Hillary. Hillary is not your candidate. And then you look this back with saying, you know, the conventional wisdom uh, that is that Barack Obama managed to win because he he mobilized the black vote to an unprecedented degree before. So, of course, there's a strategic narrative, a strategic objective of uh, disincentivizing them to vote. Uh, And this is. Graphica this autumn, a couple of months ago, Facebook released a number of suspected accounts to the social media analysis company, Graphica, and they said, hey, what's going on with these? So, Graphica made an investigation, they found also the same thing, that they were being driven from St. Petersburg, and they saw they are building the infrastructure for influencing the 2020 election. And the uniting thread all the way from uh, Black Lives Matter types of accounts to alt-right types of accounts was anti-Biden. All of the accounts were attacking Biden. That would be what was what had been identified. Uh, looping forward a little bit, now we get into, into the specifics. The more theoretical argument that I'm making in the book is that the Russian understanding of the nature of war cannot solely be defined by armed force today. It's color revolutions and information warfare that are the two most important factors driving this change. But then I know there's a lot of clever people here in the room, so I'm going to help you out a little bit. Uh, Someone would say, well, sure, but that's only a few loose quotes. I I actually counted in the book. I've gone through the work of around 140 Russian military theorists and political elites. And my argument is that kind of the mainstream of the debate has shifted in this issue. And some of the most important people, not just some theorists, but then someone will say, well, sure, but Russia is spending so much on its military. Yeah, they are. I don't think I've, anything I've said is, uh, is, is, is against that. Rather, uh, I would argue that an effective Russian military instrument is a key precondition for its offensive, non-military approach. Uh, but someone even more clever would say, sure, but Russia, Russia's strategic culture has always had a wider notion of conflict. And I also think that's a very fair point. Thank you for asking it. Uh, I think the thing what I show in the book is really the movement uh, in, in, in the way that uh, the military theoretical debate is manifested. Um, so it is a clear movement and it is a clear shift that has been done and taken. And then lastly someone said, well, but that's only what the military says it fears. And this I find is a very interesting puzzle because why would... The Russian armed forces who are in charge of external military violence say that their biggest threat is internal and non-military. Doesn't make any sense to me. I think the best answer I have to that question is really that um, they see these types of threats as so important for the political leaders that they cannot seem to afford not to respond to the demands of the political leadership. So they're saying something like, This is fantastic, super important, but give us money and we'll go and buy cruise missile. So, wrapping up, moving on to conclusions. I think the Russian understanding of war derives from a very non-sentimental impact assessment. They're basically sitting down and saying, okay, what's likely to affect us? Good. Okay, let's stop it. It doesn't think that much about, okay, does our law prohibits us from doing this? It's rather how can we Update our law to help us doing this. Uh, there's a genuine threat conviction in the Russian leadership. That's also a question that uh, people ask. You know, is this things they're just saying or um, do they really mean it? I think almost m- exclusively you should take the Russian leadership by the word. Not when they say, "Okay, we're we're not in Crimea," but rather the way they're looking at uh, the world. Just take like one example. We have Western political leaders saying um, things like this. We don't think the sanctions will, will, will make Russia behave the way we want to, but maybe it will increase, uh, it will increase the, the conflict among the oligarchs and then they get rid of Putin. Maybe that's a fair assessment, I don't know. But what we're saying straight out is we're, we're hoping for regime change in Russia. So when Sergei Lavrov goes out and says, well, um, the West is trying to engineer regime change in Russia, he might not necessarily be wrong. I don't think we are. I just think we're very bad at at understanding the consequences of what we're saying sometimes. Russian offensive approach is very often a reverse engineer uh, from what threats it has perceived, plus a dash of paranoia. you know, If Russia has been hurting because uh, they get a lot of bad international press, well, then they expand their international uh, media operations. If uh, perceptions of world, uh, perceptions of legitimacy, are being shaped in social media, of course, they're going expand their work into social media. What does this mean? From the Russian side, the strategic deterrence and subversion operation is already underway. Uh, Deterrence, mostly military, includes a wide range of military maneuvers, military signaling. Subversion operation, um, mostly connected to um, our elections. Our hopes of de-escalation is most often misplaced and unlikely to produce lasting de-escalation. I would go so far to argue that Russian uh, aggression is premised on the idea that us in the West are always predictable and always willing to come to the negotiating table, at any given time. Give me one example. After the invasion of Ukraine, Sergei Lavrov said, you guys are screaming a lot, but in half a year you would have forgotten about this. And I think he would have been completely right, completely correct, as the case was with Georgia, unless it was for the accidental downing of MH17 which killed a lot of Dutch lives and some British lives. Up until that point, you had you know, very symbolic sanctions, such as you know, visa, freezes, visa restrictions and asset freezes on symbolic figures of the Russian leaderships, Surkov, Rogozin, that type of people. Uh, but after the downing of MH17, still, the sanctions you had, wrong, sectoral sanctions, was prohibiting export of certain technologies, dual-use technologies. Um, but the financial sanction was still restricting Russian companies to take loans with a maturity longer than 30 days. So, to put it in more clear terms, the sanctions did not say, you're not allowed to operate in Western markets. It was saying, the way you borrow, and finance your operations is a little bit shorter. I don't think this is deterrent. I'll put it straightforward, the bottom line up front. Um, and the only reason that The sanctions reached some effect was because the oil price went down by 50% during late 2014. And that was also more luck than our having a very, very calculated deterrence approach. Uh, This also, of course, ties into uh, French President Macron saying, um, OK, it's time to be friends with Russia again. Even though, especially since the invasion of Crimea, no you know, constructive steps has been taken on the opposite. You have a wide scale interference in the US election. You have the use of chemical weapons on UK soil uh, and other things. I argue that Macron is playing right into the Russian leadership calculus of being, the Westerners feel that it's uncomfortable with being in a conflict. We'll wait them out and they'll come back into the negotiating table. So this leads me on to Saying that our primary problem is not—it's uh, not about attribution. This is one of the most popular things to say about modern war: is that it's ambiguous. It's very hard to know who does what and when, and especially with cyber means or so. Uh, I don't think so. I think attribution is very doable. I don't think it's immediate, but I think it's very doable. If you look at the Mueller report, you see that the U.S. knew and sanctioned. Uh, Russian intelligence officer down to individual uh, case officer because they knew who pushed which button when. That's how good they were knowing what uh, the Russian intelligence services was doing. The big problem was that they could not deter it, not that they couldn't know about it. Attribution is especially possible if you have an intelligence asset in the Russian presidential administration that knows what Putin signs off or not. Uh, You can take the example with Iranian tools. It was a story that Russian hackers hacked Iranian hackers and used Iranian hackers tools to make it seem like Iranian hacking operations. Well, some might say, well, this underscores that it's hard to know who does what. Sure, but the story also got out, which means that attribution is possible. You take the little green men in Crimea, which is a derogatory term for, for Russian Special Forces. The innovation with that was not that they took off a flag from the arm and said, ha-ha, I wonder who this is. The innovation with that was that they looked at us, with us I'm talking about the the, the West, and they said, you have no determination to stop us whatsoever. We will offer you a way out of this. Um, And we took it. There's a a Swedish book who uh, analyzes the Swedish media reporting. And the first 24 hours, Swedish media said Russian forces. But then on the second day, they said unknown forces. And then they were unknown forces for like one and a half weeks. And then they became Russian forces again. Uh, Our primary problem with contemporary warfare is not about law. I know Swedish law a lot better than I know British law. But every time you talk to a good lawyer and you look at What are the legal spaces for the armed forces and other agencies to counter modern warfare? It's actually fine. It's not a problem. Um, Lawyers are not that word. There are always lawyers just so you see problems and there's always lawyers who see solutions. The lawyers who see solutions are the ones you should talk to. But it's not, not, we're not a legal problem. We're having a political problem of, of lacking determination. Our main problem is about deterrence. We have quite a quite fair idea what's going on, but we don't have the will to to counter it. However, deterrence is quite tricky. You cannot deter everything. Is it reasonable to think of deterring Sputnik broadcasting lies or RT UK broadcasting lies? No, probably not. Is it reasonable to deter the use of chemical weapons on British soil? I think so. I think that necessitates um, a tough response I think I just want to add that this is the last one uh, if you want to see someone who start thinking about this correctly I would I would say look at the US national defense strategy 2018 signed by MADIS and worked out by some really good people around it what I see when I read it I think I see a recognition of most of the things I've been saying today they have Talking about handling the long-term strategic uh, competition, which is a uh, phrase deriving from Andrew Marshall, the legendary founder of the Office of Net Assessment, who's one of the best guys to thinking about uh, conflict within systems. It's a way of, of saying that, in it, Marshall writes for planning purposes, the competition is the confrontation is endless, which means. We cannot have the attitude that we're having today that, oh, this is a temporary problem, this will go away. This was the major fallacy of the Obama administration, and I will actually just illustrate it here. This is, sets out the, the, the U.S. way of looking at the future. They're looking at Russian economy, they're looking at Russian demography, and they're saying Russia can never be a long-term problem. Uh, it's a temporary problem. And this is still a common idea among uh, the American leadership. I think it's completely incorrect, both of them. Russian demography is not as bad as as the general uh, narrative is saying. Russian economy is only relevant to judge Russian capabilities depending on how big of a priority is it for the political leadership. In other words, they don't need strong economic growth. to be a political, to be a threat, they don't need strong economic growth um, for reaching its subordinate for its highest uh, goals, which is ensuring the the security of the regime and being a great power. Okay, I got sidetracked a little bit. They're also saying this: we need to be Jesus. This is modern stuff. Uh, the U.S. needs to be. Strategically predictable, but operationally unpredictable. And this is a little bit what I was alluding to when I was saying that Russian aggression is premised on us being predictable. We stop. need to stop doing that. So I think, I think in thought, I think the, the Americans have come a bit of, of understanding this problem set and thinking what to do about it, but there's a lot left to be done. Uh, I think I've got to stop there. I'm not going to be so cheeky to tell you uh, to, to buy my book. But the commander of the US Special Forces, he put it on his reading list. And I don't know him, but I'm sure he has an excellent judgment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's one way to find out. No. Thank you Thank you.